right, this is the pre-mechanical bull talk. I don't know that anything I say is going to help you on that bull. But hopefully this will be of greater help to you in uh, the more important pursuits of life, as fun as that will be. So what we're doing again, we'll just uh, kind of recap where we're at. We're considering a kind of counterfeiting that is not illegal, but does have greater consequences than printing fake money, and that is counterfeit Christianity. Now, some do this intentionally, but um, most are unintentional in this matter. And the reason is there's a lot of confusion right now about what it means to be a Christ follower. And that's because a lot of people claim to be Christian and they're kind of all over the map on what they do and what they think. And, and so there's just a lot of confusion about what it means. Now, it's not our business to determine who is and who is not. Uh, it is our business to be clear on what it means to be an authentic Christian and then make our decisions based on what that means. So our guide again, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17, contains three sections with three parts in each section. It identifies the, the three decisions that Christians make, the three practices that Christians work on, and the three perspectives that Christians live from. So again, the three decisions are seen in the three W words that precede Christ in the first four verses, and they are with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. Now, I'm repeating this because we had uh, cheese enchiladas, and that has a way of kind of wiping away a lot of memory. So we're, we're reviewing some of this just real quickly before we move on. So Christians are those who look at the life of Christ, and they conclude that there is a logical explanation for the miracles, for the resurrection, and that is that what he said about himself is true. He is God in flesh. He is the Savior of the world. So they decide that they're going to personally attach their lives to him. They're going to be with him now and throughout eternity. And that then changes what they live for right now. They live increasingly for what is important in heaven. Why? Well, because that's where Christ is, who they're attached to now begins to change what, what they value and what's important to them. They have found the secret to, not, to life. Authentic Christians have. Everyone's looking for it, but as Christians, we have found the secret to life. It's Christ. He's the treasure. And that then alters what we expect on any given day. We are then w willing to wait for when Christ returns in order for things to work out. As I said, we, like anyone else, we'd prefer a better day rather than a worse day. But even in the worst days, we now have a larger story that we can fit our smaller stories into. So we're willing to wait for the last chapter to be written, for Christ to return. And we're willing to, to live through some hard times. We don't want to, but if we have to, we now have an answer for that. And so with these three decisions in place, Christ followers go to work on the implications of these decisions. They begin to rearrange the things in their life. They put in place three practices. These practices are seen in the three lists that are found in verses 5 through 14 of Colossians chapter 3. The first list that we just looked at before uh, dinner contains the essential training elements and instructions on how to reduce our natural tendency to form God-level attachments 
to the things of this world. It's amazing what we can get attached to and how attached we can become. And so we need, to, we need this instruction, we need these practices to learn how to remove the idols that we've constructed over time in our life. And it's these idols that really drive our sin, our struggle to rebel against God. Now, the next two lists that we're going to turn our attention to tonight are the practices that help us learn how to love people. Like I said, before Christ, the natural tendency is to love things and use people. After Christ, we move the needle towards the direction of loving people and using things. And so we need to learn how to love people. And we begin by uh, the first list, and that is the put-off list. So before we had to put to death the things that are idols in our life, now if we're going to learn how to love, there's some practices that we have that we're going to have to put off. We're going to have to begin to get rid of these practices. Colossians 3, 7 through 10, the next verses describe this, says this, In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Here's the list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're putting off the old self, the practices of the old self, and we're putting on the practices of the way God designed us to live. Now this list, as with the other lists, is not just a, a set of random activities for us to consider, but these rather are the common patterns in order again, a cascading order of how we, we tend to relate to each other. Again, we just, without any instruction, given our natural sinful nature and the brokenness of this world, this is just the way we all kind of develop. These are the paths, as it says, we walk in these paths. You know, we're, we're not off on our own blazing a trail of these. No, th this is a well-trodden path. A path is there because a lot of people have walked on that path, and we're just the next in a long line of people that do these kinds of things. In fact, these are so common to us that it would be fair to say, as it says in this, for this passage, we live in these. This, this, is, this is our life. This is just the way family life is. This is the way work life is. This is the way, you know, athletes and teams work together. I mean, it's just, this is just the way life is. So for the authentic Christian, these patterns increasingly become a thing of the past. They are put off. Now, again, to be clear, you decide to follow Jesus Christ, and the next day, you're not done with all these because you've been spending, I don't know, maybe two decades perfecting this and learning the nuances of maybe how your family does these things. And they're powerful now. You've walked in these paths. And you don't just suddenly decide to go off-roading and abandon these paths. No, these are the paths that you know. But your commitment to Christ begins to shift as you practice. You begin to stop doing these as much and start doing some of the things we're going to look at in the future and just in the next list. What happens is, over time, these are the ways that we once walked, but not so much now. These are the ways that we were living, it says, but not 
as much now. So how does that happen? How do we change these patterns? Well, it's like we've talked about. It takes practice. You have to have new habits. We put off, as it says, the old self with its, and this is critical, its practices. One of the important truths to understand is that whenever you want to change behavior, you have to recognize all of the practices and the history that has supported that behavior. There's a whole root system that goes into that thing. You can't just command it to leave. You've got to dig down into the roots of your life and begin to pull up some of those things. This is why it just takes time. I wish we could just make decisions and we'd be different people, but that's just not who we are. So it is our old self along with its practices. It's not just our old self. It has practices. So the way we are in life isn't magical. It isn't mysterious. It's what we've learned through years of practice, not just by big and sudden decisions. Now, we, we tend to miss this because, especially now in our culture, um, we, are, we pretty much have adopted a view of life that the media has presented to us. And the way the media presents life stories is in one to two hour segments. That's how long we get to watch. You know, two hours is about as long as you can right now. And so in a one to two hour segment, you can't take a messed up family and get into the practices that have made them messed up. No, you, you have to completely transform that family from a dysfunctional family that hates each other to a mom and dad now who love each other and kids who love each other in two hours. And so we think, huh, I guess that's how it works. But that is never how it works. I, mean, I can't tell you how many movies I've watched where you start out and there's this couple and they're getting ready to get it, go through a divorce. And it looks like, you know, he's cheating on her and she's mad at him. And I mean, just everything is a disaster. And then this volcano nearby starts to blow up. And you realize, you know what? I think they're getting back together again. Why? Well, he's going to rescue her as the volcano, the lava runs down. And I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. The volcano blowing up isn't going to save any marriage. But that's the way the movies are. So we just get this idea that, you know what? We can just change anytime we want. We can be this kind of person, and then we can suddenly be this kind of person. The truth is we can change with the help of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it almost never is a 180, one-day kind of shift. It's because it's not magical. We're going to have to put on the new self, and we're going to have to change the way we treat people. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a lot of practice, and there will be setbacks. You know, anything you've practiced, if... If you're a musician, um, that took time to learn your instrument. If you're an athlete and you're any good at it, you've put in a lot of practice. You didn't just one day say, you know, I'm going to be amazing. <laughs> and then you were. No, it's like, you know, I'm going to, 
I'm going to practice guitar, and I'm going to learn the notes, and then I'm going to practice, and then I'm going to have to develop calluses on these fingers because these strings really hurt. Then I'm going to have to practice for another year and another two years, and then eventually, you're pretty good. But it, it takes practice to do something new. So these two lists contain the essential training practices that we will need to do repeated, repeatedly if we're going to learn how to love. Again, I, I wish it was easier. I really wish I could just say, hey, you know what? Here's the three things you need to do, and you're, you're going you're gonna to be a real loving person. I, I can't, I don't have, that's not, that's not what's true. You can't just decide to do it and hope to pull it off. You got to practice. You know, about five years ago, um, my back started giving me problems for no apparent reason. And as I got it looked into, it turns out there was a reason. <laughs> and the reason was my core muscles um, were not strong enough to support my aging back. Now, I'm 59, I'm going to be 60 this year, which means I don't feel old, but apparently I'm getting old. And so the doctor said, you know what, you're going to have to strengthen your core muscles. And to be honest, I'd never given my core muscles a thought. I knew I had them. But he told me that I need to start strengthening my core muscles. So you know what, I decided that's what I'm going to do. That didn't help. The decision didn't help. The decision to strengthen my core muscles didn't make them any stronger. I had to actually practice. And the practicing, like all practicing, has two sides to that coin. There's new things that you do and old things that you stop doing to make room for the new things that you're doing. There's just no other way to do it. You can't decide, you know what, I'm going to do new things and suddenly God's going to open up two more hours in my 24-hour day in which to do those things. I once told a friend some of my big goals for the year, and I was pretty excited about these goals. They were pretty ambitious. And my friend turned to me and said, so what are you going to stop doing? It's like, what do you mean? Well, if you're going to do these, what are you going to stop doing? Well, nothing. I'm just going to add these to what I'm already doing. It's like, then you're not going to do them. What? Turns out he was right. That was why I kept not meeting my goals is because I, I didn't stop to think, okay, if I'm going to really do these, what am I first going to stop doing to make room for these? That's turned out for me was the more important decision, not just I'm going to do these new things, but it's, no, I'm going to stop doing these things so that I can do these things. That's the two sides. So when it comes to my back, there's new things that I'm doing like exercising. And there's old things that I'm no longer doing, like helping people move. I finally realized, you know what? I'm too old for that. I'll be the guy to help pay for the truck, but I will not be the guy to help you carry your couch anywhere. Because, I, you know, I did that when I was 30 and 40 and in my 50s, and, I, I, you know, that's an old practice that I'm no longer going to do. <laughs> so this is just the way it is in life. You have to put off some old things to put on some new things, to make room for the new things. And it's the same if you decide to become serious about learning how to love people. 
you can't just crank up the emotion. And this is one of the lies, again, in our cultures. We've just got such a, a syrupy, sentimental view of love as just this feeling that we have. And in Scripture, love is a real concrete set of actions that have to be, have to be learned and have to be practiced that are not natural to us. So it's not an emotion. So we have these two lists, the put-off list and the put-on list. First, the put-off list. The put-off list is basically put off the practices of manipulation. If you're going to love people, you have to first stop manipulating them. The main reason we don't love others that well is because we're too busy using them to meet our needs. This is one of the words that we taught our kids early, early on. And it was pretty funny when they were two and three years old, they could finally pronounce the word manipulation, but they still didn't really understand it that much. But it took us time, and eventually they got a beat on what it was. Because our understanding was, this is, out of Scripture, this is the main tactic that we use other than love, is we just try to manipulate people into getting what we want out of life. Now, it's completely fine and appropriate to ask people for help. It's fine to say, you know, could you help me with this? Could you do this for me? That's completely fine. But in order to ask someone for help, first of all, that's a humbling thing to do. You have to admit you need help. And we're not very humble, naturally. And then, if you ask someone to help, you not only have to humble yourself, you have, you have to take on a risk. And what's the risk? They're going to say, nah. But I really wanted you to do this for me. Nah, I don't want to do it. Well, now you're stuck. So the common pattern is trying to get people to do what we want them to do without actually asking them to do it. We try to get them to give us what we want without them ever really knowing what's going on. Here's Webster's definition of manipulation. I love it. To control to one's own advantage. I mean, this is just the way we do relationships, naturally. No one has to teach us to do this. It just comes natural. I remember one time um, when our son was three, and I know several of you know my son, so um, I think he's okay with me telling you. I didn't ask his permission because I forgot there's going to be people here that know him. So, oh well. Uh, he was three, and um, he was in the bathtub this one night, and what we, what we did is we would give our kids countdown warnings so that they could anticipate the next transition. So we'd say, okay, Lance, you got 10 more minutes, and it's time to get out of the bathtub. All right. Okay, five minutes. All right. Okay. I, I walked by, and he was old enough to get out of the bathtub and dry himself and get in bed. So I said, okay, Lance, why don't you get out of the bathtub? And then I went back, I was busy doing something, and I went back, and there he was, still in the bathtub. So I said, Lance, I said, son, I told you to get a bathtub, you need to obey daddy now. And he looked at me, and his eyes filled up with tears, and his bottom lip started to quiver, and he said, why are you so mad at me? And I was like, oh, no, buddy, no, no. I'm, 
Well, I'm not, and I started backpedaling. I mean, the last thing I want to be was an angry parent. For the next 15 minutes, I tried to explain to a three-year-old that I wasn't angry. And then it occurred to me, huh. He's gotten 15 more minutes of bath time out of this. That, that's amazing. He had gotten what he wanted from me by getting me to feel guilty, which, by the way, is a major manipulation tool, by getting me to feel guilty when I hadn't, in fact, done anything wrong. He had. He had disobeyed me. Now, again, that's amazing. And I I tell you, he had not been to a single how to manipulate your parents class. (laughs) No one taught him this. This just arose out of the dark depths of the human heart in a cute three-year-old. It just, it just happens. If you're a parent, this will stun you. Our sweet little cherubs are what? How did they learn how to do that? My granddaughter recently, I remember my wife told me this, is that my daughter was in the front of the van, and Millie, my granddaughter, who at this point was, I think, four. Yeah, no, three and a half. And she was not obeying, and so Andrea firmly said, Millie, you need to get back in your car seat now. You need to obey Mommy. And Rebecca was helping another one of the grandkids, and she overheard Millie under her breath say, I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear that. This is three and a half. And she's sweet. But that's dark. You know, that's, that's, you know. So she's, she's figured out, you know, I don't have to get my car seat for another five minutes because there's three other kids around here. And if I just kind of like, huh? I don't have to get in for another four or five minutes. And then if she asks, I'm like, uh? Again, Kids don't go to school for this. this. This just happens. So that night, I learned the meaning of the phrase, he had me wrapped around his, his little finger. You heard that phrase? That's a manipulation phrase. The phrase comes from the way a person controls a yo-yo. If you ever used a yo-yo, you wrap the string around your finger, and then what do you do? You send the yo-yo down, then you bring it back up. So this is what we do with people. We find some leverage, we find some way to wrap them around our finger so that we can send them out to do our bidding and then come on back for the next assignment. That's the image of manipulation. And this happens subtly. I didn't know that my three-year-old son had gained control of me at that point. He honestly, he didn't know he was doing it. So manipulative strategies tend to develop in one of two streams. They're either forceful strategies of manipulation or they're deceptive strategies of manipulation. Another way of saying this is either we push people to do what we want or we trick them into doing it. So the list begins with the push list. Actually, this is most of the list is the push list. So here's the push list of manipulation. 
Number one is anger. And again, these cascade. The word anger here used in the Greek language means to swell up. So if you or your agenda are not getting the attention that you like, people are not doing what you want, how can you enlarge your profile? How can you get them to do it? Well, you get angry. Basically, you puff yourself up. It's kind of like being a puffer fish. You know, you're actually this big, but once you get angry, how big do you appear? <gasps> Bigger. Scarier. Now you've got everyone's attention. Now, the right to tell people what to do is legitimate, but it's always very limited. So parents have the right to tell their children what to do. That's the authority God has given parents. They have the right to tell their children. They don't have the right to tell other children what to do. They have the right to tell their children what to do. Professors, you know this. They have the right to tell students what to do for a certain grade. Students that are in their class. They have that right. They've been given that authority. Bosses have the right to tell employees what to do on the job. Not at home, but on the job. So these are just some examples of the areas of legitimate authority. The problem is this, is that we are always concerned about far more than we are in charge of. We always want things to happen that we have no authority over. And we always want people to do things that we are not the boss of them over. So to cover the gap, what we do is we swell up in anger and we act like we're in charge. That's what anger does. Anger basically says, hey, I'm in charge. The way I want it to be is the way it should be. Now, it's not true, but that's what it feels like to the person getting angry. They're swelling up there. They're extending beyond what they actually have authority over. And it feels like that to the people who are recipients of the anger. It feels like, oh, man, I'm in trouble. But wait, you're not my boss. But it feels like you are. That's what anger does. Swells up. Then you move to the next level, DEFCON 2. Wrath. Now, we think of anger and wrath as the same thing, but in this list, it's, it's the next level. The Greek word here for wrath means consuming desire. What's interesting is this is the exact same word as the word for evil desire in the first list. So it can be used either for evil desire that's getting out of control or an anger that's getting out of control. So it's that sled on an icy hill image that I was talking about. What happens here is the heart literally becomes overrun with the emotion of anger. It just takes over. And this is the important thing to understand about anger. anger. When we decide to get angry, we don't get to choose the size that it swells up to. In other words, we don't, we don't, this is, the anger doesn't work this way. Anger doesn't say, you know what? To get this person to do what I want them to do, I think it's going to take a level four anger. So I'm going to dial up a level four. That's all. I don't need to go to level five. Level four should, should get the trick done. That's not the way anger works. Anger is just, <sighs> And then it takes off. It's that 
inner tube down the icy sled. Once you push anger off, you're along for the ride. And it just gets bigger and bigger and gets out of control. We lose control and devastation just starts taking over. And oftentimes at the end of an anger run, we're like, well, I, I didn't want it to get that ugly. That's because you don't, you don't choose the level of anger. You choose anger and then wrath, consuming desire, takes it wherever it's going to go. And then you move to the next level. That is malice. That means, the, the, weird, the Greek word for malice means to bring trouble on another. A simple way of saying it is to punish them. So how do people tend to respond to anger? Well, some people get out of the way, especially if it's a new relationship. If they don't really know you that well and you get angry, they're like, ooh, okay, ooh. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people just respond with their own anger. And if you have a history with them and they know that you're a puffer fish, they know you're not really the boss of them. So they ignore or they get angry in response back to us. So what do we do when that happens? Well, we take it to the next level. That's this level, malice. If our anger and our wrath doesn't get what we want, all right, now we bring the trouble. We're going we're gonna to make you sorry you ever crossed us. We work to find a way to punish them for their noncompliance. And there's just all kinds of ways this is done. This is where we get creative. Some people withdraw emotionally, you know, and punish. This happens a lot in marriages. Just the giant sulk. All right? I'm just going to shut down, pretend like you don't even exist. Because I'm, I want to bring trouble to you. Give them the silent treatment. Or we find a way to block something that they want. You know, they have to pay a price. But the idea is, is, is that we go from just the emotion and the words of anger and wrath, and now it's like, okay, now we are, we're working on how can I mess with you to punish you so that you will comply with me in what I want. That's the malice. Then we move on to the next level, and that is slander. That means to defame. The Greek word here is blasphema, where we get blasphemy from. The idea is that we go public with our anger and we gather an audience for it. This is where anger just naturally tends to go. We get angry with someone. When we do that, we, we rarely keep it to ourselves. We build an audience. We broadcast it. And in doing so, what we're doing is we are now manipulating the listeners to either agree with our anger or feel our wrath. I mean, everyone that here, if you're upset with someone and you just, oh, I can't believe, everybody who's listening is knowing, knowing, knowing what? I better nod my head this way or I'm going to be on the other side of this. So that's the slander. We defame people. Not because 
We just want to hurt them, but because we want our way. Then we go to the next level, and that is obscene talk. This word means to disfigure. You just get the image of, of a statue, and let's say that's the person, and you, you want to take a pickaxe to it, or you want to splash paint all over it. You want, to, you want to use your words to paint a distorted image of them in the eyes of others. This happens all the time. Is you misrepresent someone to someone else. Or you take some small little thing and you make that true of them entirely when it was just a small little statement, a small little misunderstanding. You blow it out of, comport, out of proportion. You disfigure them. And the result of this is your army of anger grows. You get more people on your side. And that justifies your anger. And the anger spreads. And even though we might eventually calm down, well, now it's out of our hands. Now we've as James says, we've struck a match and the forest is on fire. And it's out of our hands how far this is going to burn. And in the attempt to get our way, in the attempt to manipulate and control people, we just, we just damage all kinds of relationships. Again, what I'm describing to you is not the bottom 5% really evil people in the world, what I'm describing to you is what is just naturally in every single heart. This is what we do in, in some subtle variations in our own ways, but this is what we do. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and then we just misrepresent people. That's the push strategy of manipulation. The other stream of manipulation is the pull, the deception. And it's described in just a very simple phrase. Do not lie to one another. So in this form, rather than bluster to get our way, we try to control the facts in order to trick people into giving us what we want. In some cases, we lie outright to advance our agenda. But oftentimes, what we do is we give a highly edited version of the facts in order to steer people in the direction that we want. Now, there's a lot of different ways to do this, but one of the common tactics that I've seen and that I know myself in this vein is to exaggerate emotions to get people to come running to our aid. Now, this is really subtle, but very, very common. So this would be the person who is just sad. And it's okay to be sad, but they're sadder than they should be. If you looked at all the facts of their life, it's like, yeah, that is sad. But it's not that sad. And this person looks like everyone close to them just died. And they just carry this cloud around them. 
Now, again, hear me. I'm not saying that if someone's sad, uh-oh, you're manipulating me. No. If you're sad, that's okay. But sometimes we learn early on that when I'm sad, what do people do? Oh, are, are you okay? What can I do to help you? Glad you asked. I have four things that I need. And, so, and people do this. They learn as a strategy. It's like, you know what? I'm sad. Or I'm just overwhelmed. This is another thing I, I see a lot now. People just walk around like, oh, oh, are you okay? Oh, no. Life is just crazy. What well, can I help you? Yes. <laughs> I got a couple things you can do. Oh, because well, you look overwhelmed. I am. Now, maybe they are too busy, but it can become a strategy. And again, if people really are overwhelmed, well, by good, help them. I'm not saying don't help them. I'm just, I'm, we're talking about the subtle side of things now. Or they, they, they just get disappointed in people. And what everyone around them learns is, man, we are walking on eggshells here. And so everyone is like, are you Okay. It's a form of manipulation. One of the things that, that I've learned personally in this, because I have practiced the overwhelmed thing, just true confession time, and what I've learned is that it's okay for me to share. I mean, I, I do get busy, and I do need help. And it's okay for me to ask people, say, hey, you know what, I'm really busy. Could you help with this? They say no. Okay. That's okay to ask for help. But what I've learned when I, when I think I'm using this strategy is when I am telling people only the hard and bad things in my life and not the good things. That's a, that's a warning flag. It's like, okay, why am I editing my life? Why am I leaving out, hey, this great thing happened yesterday? Because what's the response to a good report? Well, that's great. Response to a bad report, how can I help you? That's what I want. So I'm not going to tell them the good stuff. I'm just going to tell them the, oh, uh, so that they can come rushing to my aid. Now, again, I've never found a class on manipulation. We don't need a class. We're good. We figure this stuff out on our, just by watching what people do. And we develop these strategies. Push strategies are real obvious. Pull strategies, those are way below the surface and pretty subtle. So what's your favorite flavor of manipulation? By the way, one of the comment on the pull thing, this is where the whole victim mentality comes from. You've heard this idea that you know, the victim mentality is where I'm always a victim. The reason you're, you view yourself as a victim rather than a free choosing agent that can act is because victims need to be rescued. And, you know, someone gets lost up in these mountains, pretty soon there's 100 people looking for him. Well, 100 people looking to help you, that's helpful. So, so this is one, again, people don't decide, you know what? I think I'm going to adopt a victim mentality. No, they just do. And it feels right to them. And People rush around them and enable them, and they manipulate. 
So again, what's your favorite flavor of manipulation? Now, just, just think about this. Don't, I'm not going to ask you to get in groups and share this with each other. Just, this, is, this is helpful for you to, to think about this. Because I promise you, you have some. And if you're not aware of what they are, it would really be helpful for you to know what they are before you get married. Because once you get married, you will discover what they are. And that will be a hard and painful discovery. So it's helpful at this point if you can do a little work on that now. Do you prefer pushing people or pulling people to do what you want them to do? Again, we've all practiced these. We're not talking about the bottom 5%. We're talking about 100%. We're talking about me. We're talking about you. All right, so that's the put off, the practices of manipulation. Now, put on the practices of love. Okay, now this, this, is the, this is the little brighter side of the list. This is put list number three. Let me read it to you, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, here's the list. Compassion. This is where love really begins. The Greek word here means to have pity on. Now again, it's not, oh, poor, poor, but it really means to feel with another person. That's what the English translation often says, is to feel with. The idea is you are moved to help someone. You actually care about them. Now, how did, the question that I've often wrestled with is, how do you develop compassion for somebody else? I mean, you, you can't just muster it up. You can't just look at somebody and, okay, now I feel it. I feel compassion for you. It took me a minute, got there. Now I feel compassion. You know, the way I, I think compassion grows is as we learn someone else's story. For me, that's been a huge help in developing compassion. You know, it's easy to treat people as objects to be used for your own purposes until you get to know their stories. What's true of them, where they've been. Objects, they're moved around, but they don't really have stories. People have stories. And those stories are filled with good things and hard things, things that they're afraid of, things that they're hopeful for, joys and sadnesses. And as over time you get to know more of someone's story, it's really difficult not to have any feeling for them. But what I've learned over time just in general is, is people lack very much curiosity about anyone else's story. I mean, I, I've been in conversations where I've asked someone five questions about their life and they've never asked a single question about mine. Now, 
no one here. I'm not talking about anyone here. You guys are great. But I'm just saying, out in the world, there's just a lack of curiosity in anybody else. But that's one of the key ways of how you build compassion for someone. So ask questions. If you're looking at someone and you're saying, huh, I'm, I'm not really feeling much compassion, well, ask a question. It's just a basic question. And then a follow-up question. And then next time you see him, ask another one. Try to remember the answers to the ones you heard before. Do you have to start over again? And, you know, people don't generally share their whole life story, so it's going to take time, but just ask questions. Take an interest in, in people's story, and your compassion for people will go up. We tend to look at what people do and decide whether we care about them based on that. But you need to go further than that. You need to look at their story. The next word is, is kindness. We need to put on kindness. This means to give what is helpful. So first your heart is moved, then you get practical. Then you want to act on it. How do you know what really is helpful for someone? You have to put some thought into it. You know, you have to think, now if I was in their shoes, knowing what I know about them and their story, what would be helpful right now? What's just some practical thing that I could do to care for them? Now, it takes time to be kind, and this is one of the challenges that we have, is we're moving so fast, we just, you cannot do a drive-by kindness. It's just, it's just really not possible. You have, to, you have to stop and think and then act. Those are the stages of kindness. Stop. Think about this person. What could I do that would be helpful? And then do it. Act. That's kindness. Now, again, these are all practices. You won't just tomorrow suddenly become a kind person. You're going to have to intentionally practice this. Then humility. The word humility means to be low-minded. That is not being stupid. Low-minded does not mean dumb. Low-minded means you don't approach people with the absolute certainty of arrogance about them. Now, we do this all the time with people. We size people up, and we put them in a category, and then we treat them accordingly. And the truth is, we really don't know enough about them to have anything more than just a guess. Now, our guess may be accurate, but humility says, it's just a guess. I don't really know what's going on. This seems like it, but I don't know. Humility realizes that people are really complicated. And so being absolutely certain about who they are, that just isn't fitting. The idea is, is you approach people kind of low. One of the mission trips that I took years ago to Ghana, Africa, we went um, in northern Ghana, and it was mostly a, a tribal area. And whenever we would go into these villages, one of the practices that you had to do is if ever there was an elder of the village or the chief of the village that you was coming on the path before you or you were meeting them, you had to, you had to crouch down to make sure that your eye contact was, your eyes were lower than them. And as a white American, we were all way taller than all of them. And so we kind of had to do this limbo thing the whole time. We're walking through the village because you, oh, it's an elder. Oh, got to get, you know, 
Hey, and so we had to get, you know, but the idea was, is, is you don't look down on an elder or a chief. You look up. And this is kind of the, what it's talking about. It's, it's the way we approach people. We don't look down on them in our hearts. We, we want to at least look eye to eye, but if, if at all possible, let's look up with some curiosity, not certainty. That's humility. So instead of quick conclusions and statements, we spend a little more time listening to them and a lot more time praying about them. That's humility. And then meekness. Meekness, boy, this one's a hard one. This is, this is like bench pressing 300 pounds. Meekness means, yeah, I'm never doing that, but less, less than that. It's a lot. It's a lot. Gentle when provoked. That's hard. The first three items on the list are about how to move towards people in love. These next two are about absorbing poor treatment of others. It's a real essential practice if you're going to love people. Because just because you decide to love doesn't mean everyone around you is going to join you in the love fest. No, if, you're, if your love, like I said mine was when I got married, if your love is conditioned on being treated well, you're not going to get very far in your effort to love. Because it's a brutal world out there. You know, recently, um, my wife was accused of some things by some family members that were just completely unfounded and untrue. And man, it made me angry. And it really, it was clear that the right thing to do was just be quiet and not respond. But I felt so weak. That's what meekness feels like. Meekness feels like weakness. Someone provokes you, and it feels like what you need to do is go, oh, yeah? And meekness goes. Doesn't that feel weak? It does feel weak. But you know, this is what Jesus did for you and me. I mean, people didn't just say bad things about him. They spit on him. I mean, whenever I think of that, it's like, okay, so here's someone that Jesus has created. In other words, the molecules of their body exist because of his creative power, not just initially, but ongoing. Hebrews says he sustains this world by the power of his word. So they're, they're breathing because Jesus is actively keeping them alive. And then they form a loogie in their throat made of molecules that Jesus created. And then they spit, and it runs down his face. And he doesn't, he doesn't just, not just lightning from heaven, just stop keeping them alive. He just takes it for us. Because if he didn't take it, he wouldn't go to the cross. So he took it. I, I'm just telling you, for me, this is the hardest one. I just, I just want to give people a piece of my mind so many times, and God just says, no. No. Just be quiet. Take it. And then patience. 
So again, if you're going to love people, you're going to have to be meek, gentle and provoked. And then you have to be patient. Patient is another one of those compound Greek words, two words, meaning long and enduring. Kind of sounds like the same thing. It's the Greek way of saying long, 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 long. You're just going to have to wait. People won't just treat us poorly on occasion. They're, well, they're like us. They get caught up in their own worlds and they're just going to run over us without even thinking about it. So the two parts to patience in a relationship are this. This is the next things on the list. Bearing with one another. This means basically putting up with and not losing your head and getting angry. Just putting up with it. And then the other part of patience is you're just going to have to forgive people over and over and over again, forgiving each other. You know, if you're unwilling to forgive before long, there's going to be no one left to love. Because everyone's going to wrong you in your life. So you got to keep forgiving them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. Now, don't be sorry about truth. Truth is good. <laughs> but that's just the way it is. If you don't forgive, you don't get to be married very long. It's just, you just have to keep forgiving. Now, why forgive? Well, it tells us. Again, Jesus' example, as the Lord forgave you, so you almost also must forgive. And then it goes on to say, and I love this, and above all these, put on love. These are the components of love. So it's saying, all right, now let's talk about the whole thing. Put on love which binds, this is the thing that binds all of this together in perfect harmony. Harmony is a word that's often used for music, not love. Maybe harmony in relationships, but we often use it, you know, for an orchestra. And the reason it's used here is because love, in many respects, is kind of like an orchestra. I don't know if you've been to an or orchestra performance, but it's kind of like that. Love can take all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances and pull them together into the beauty of perfect harmony. But for that to happen, you need a couple things. First of all, you need individuals who have practiced their instruments of love well. And that's what these lists are. These, these words are basically the instruments of love. They're the violins and the trumpets and the flutes and the clarinets and the percussion instruments of love. You can't, you just can't come up with love without these components. So you need individuals who know these instruments and have practiced these instruments. And then what you need is you need a conductor to bind everything together. And the conductor is Christ. Without Christ, love becomes just kind of random acts. It, it lacks harmony, particularly in a group. Harmony between you and others doesn't just happen the moment you decide to be a follower of Christ, to be with him. At that moment, what you get is you get a conductor and a bunch of sheet music to practice. We're still a little ways away from harmony, but we're on our way. So, pick one of the words. Pick up an instrument. And start working on the scales. Just start practicing. 
Just pick one. Circle one of these. And for the next couple weeks, every day, just try to think, okay, so how can I practice this? What would an exercise be that I could do on this? Now, again, these words are about practicing, not performing. None of us do any of these perfectly, but we do practice them. How can you tell if someone's practicing an instrument? They get better. You know, if they say, you know what, I've been practicing violin for two years, and you listen to them, you're like, I'm not sure what you're doing. But I don't know if you're really practicing, because it still sounds bad. <laughs> so you need to practice. Over time, you know, you can get better. So if you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if you're a Christian, then you've put off the old self with all of the well-practiced patterns of manipulation, and now you're on track to become a different kind of person, a really different kind of person. The kind of person, it says here, who's being renewed in the knowledge of what it means to have been created in the image of God. That's an amazing statement. Renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. You get a chance to actually begin to be the kind of person you were created to be that reflects the image of the one who made you, who loves like this. There's no greater privilege. So what this means is we've been so consumed in the patterns of relating in anger and deception that we've forgotten the critical role that God created us to play. We've been given the capacity to love like he does. And when people experience that, there's power there because that's, there's nothing else out there that's like this. There's no orchestra playing this music. Only one that Christ conducts. And as we practice and as we get better and better at love, something amazing happens. And verse 11 is wedged in between these, these lists. And it says this, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What does that mean? I mean, what's a Scythian? Is that, was that the guy on Star Wars? Was he Sith? No, no, this is something different. This was the current list of the categories determining how people should be treated. If you were a Jew, you treated Greeks this way. If you were a barbarian, you conquered civilized people. If you were civilized people, you hated barbarians. A Scythian is, the bar is a barbarous tribe from southern Siberia at the time. So the barbarians were the ones from the European continent. Scythians were the, the threat from the Siberian, Asian continent. And everyone, you know, these were really different people. And they really hated each other. Both directions. But what this is saying is that if you join the orchestra of Christ, all of these normal people divisions, they don't matter. I mean, they still exist. Scythians are Scythians. Jews are Jews. Greeks are Greeks. Barbarians are barbarians. They still exist. But... Now something more matters. 
And that's Jesus Christ. You're all with him. And something that our world has been trying to figure out, make happen, happens. Really, really different people love each other. That's an amazing thing. So if you're a Christian, you will practice putting off your old patterns of anger and manipulation. And if you're a Christian, you, will, you won't wait until things like compassion, kindness, humility, and patience towards people just well up naturally from the good place in your heart. You'll wait a long time for that to happen. No, instead, like musicians, you will get out these instruments and you will practice the scales of these instruments so that they can be used by Christ when he conducts. So let me read this whole section to you. Colossians 3, 17 through 14. In fact, let's read it together. It's a long passage. I think we can project it up there. So Colossians 3, 7 through 14. Let's read it together. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that if you put off the old self with its practices and it been put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right. Now you have the scales and the instruments and some practice to do. Let me pray. Jesus, there's just nothing like the kind of life you offer. The freedom from the pressure and the animosity and the anger of manipulation is released in you. And the privilege of really caring about people and loving them really has a chance to grow in us. And we all are different places and have different challenges, but we share these things in common. And those of us that are with you, we now have help from you and direction from you, and we submit to you as the conductor of love. We step into your orchestra. We will practice our instruments with the help of the Holy Spirit and then we ask that you would direct us as we're in conversations, as we are attacked, as we are wronged and have to forgive. Help us to take direction from you. I pray particular for those in this room that have been hurt deeply. I, help, I pray, God, that you would help them to forgive and that you would free them from the pain that the enemy wants to use to poison their life. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.